it made me recenter myself on why it is I do the art. It's 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 not it's not for the fame. It's not for the ego. As a matter of fact, your ego can be quite an enemy. It's a way to connect. Print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Miles Calvert. This cheeky Canadian uses his wit and whimsy to make every demo as educational as it is fun. In his personal practice, major bodies of work has included massive installations of screen-printed pieces of toast and the idolization of British celebrity culture. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Peter Nickel. We talk about standing in front of a Rembrandt self-portrait as a child and how this set him on the course to be an artist, even if he didn't know it then. The power of seeing such art objects in person, his long hiatus from making, and how he got back into the flow. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to feel the aura with Peter Nickel. Hi, Peter. How's it going? It's going great. So great thank to see you. you. Yeah, great to see you too. And, and thank you for your patience as I battled my way into the podcasting studio in a blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate that. Give me a chance to play on my phone. Yeah, right, right. We always need that excuse now for sure. And yeah, I was really delighted to meet you at Print Expo this year because I'd seen your work through exhibitions that I'd been invited to be a juror of. And it just was great to then meet the person behind the art because I think a lot of times you get to know someone's practice just through these graphics on the computer and then seeing it in person. And so I'm really excited to learn more about you and, and your story today. That was a great thing for me too, the print expo, because you, you do get to put put the faces with the prints that you've been mm-hmm. seeing. And that's that's been the blessing of the social media the only reason I ever got on social media was being able to connect with other printmakers. Mm-hmm. And I got on initially Facebook and just connected with all the other printmakers. And then, of course, that opened up doors to all kinds of different organizations and opportunities and stuff. It's it's a great resource. 
as long as you don't spend all day on it. Yes, that <laughs> needing to learn restraint is key. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into your story, I'd, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself to people listening by the way of answering the questions, who you are, where you are, what you do. Okay. Well, I, I like to refer to myself as an artist printmaker because I'm an artist first and I happen to love printmaking, specifically lithography, because that offers me the best opportunity to, to draw, to do drawings, which is what I love to do. And uh, I live in Austin, Texas. I would, would have never dreamed of winding up here. <laughs> I was born and raised in Southern California, loved the beach, never thought I would ever leave it. Got up and went to the ocean every morning and I never dreamed I would wind up in a place like Texas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my friends tease me because I used to say, well, yeah, I'm not going to be here that long because who would want to be in Texas? <laughs> yeah, I know I'm offending some of my Texas friends, but it, it's acceptable because I've been here for 40 years. Yeah, I got here and loved it. I got my water fixed by going to Barton Springs every day, which is a beautiful, natural water hole here in Austin. Mm. And the people here were, were wonderful. And I was afforded opportunities here in the art world that were just not available anywhere else. So it kick-started me on my art career and been here ever since. Wonderful yeah. place to be. And so growing up in Southern California, getting to go to the beach... What role did art play in that part of your life? Well, zero at first. <laughs> it's, it's weird. I have, have an older brother who is a ceramicist, and he was, quote, unquote, the artist in the family. Mm. And I, I had no intentions of being an artist. I didn't have those early desires. The thing that, that did affect me, though, was the fact that my, my dad was a cabinet maker, Mm. And he was always working with his hands and he had a workshop in the garage in which he did his fun stuff, making toys and stuff like that, but also doing his, his cabinetry and that sort of thing. So there was always a kind of a creative ambiance in the family, but I didn't, I didn't start really pursuing the art thing until just by accident, took an art class as a requirement, because I wasn't the artist in the family. Mm -hmm. You know how those family stories go, right? Yeah. And I had a professor who just said, dude, you have natural talent. It would be a shame if you didn't explore this. And that's all it took. One word of encouragement in, mm. in the right direction. And that set me off on a long road of that I'm still traveling. It's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you said professor. So was this in your undergrad that you had this experience? Yeah, it was actually at a junior college. This guy named Gerald Birchman, and he's a few years ago, he was still around. So he's ancient, but, you know, he was a painter. And he taught at Santa Monica College, which was a great place to go. And, you know, it was one of those early state supported schools where tuition was 20 bucks per credit mm. and you could 
wander out in the quad and see concerts and stuff like that. It was awesome. Great environment. Not always conducive to getting work done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, you know, I think one of the things that really appealed to me was that I found that doing the drawings and doing the art was a way to get something out there that I could communicate with other people with, Mm -hmm. uh, because I'd I'd start getting feedback about what something might have meant to them, which brings me back to an event that I think was formative. Long before the college era, I was a skateboarder, Mm. and I had a profound experience as I was skateboarding. Listen to this. I was skateboarding around the L.A. County Museum of Art. Really great grounds there because it's all flagstone, super level, super flat, beautiful to skateboard on, whatever. And I'd been doing that for quite a while on a hot summer morning. So I decided to cool off, ditch my skateboard in the bushes and went inside the museum And, you know, I'm 12, 13, maybe. And my intent is just to go in and cool off. But, you know, I wander in and there's a painting that's lit up and I walk up to it and it's it's a Rembrandt self-portrait, right? Really big, four by six. And I was was really captivated by it. I spent a, a while looking at it and then I got up close and could see the individual breaststrokes, and then started to marvel at the fact that this guy had attention to detail. He, Those little flicks of paint that described the colors of the eye and the, the lashes and, you know, the funny hat he had on and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm standing there looking at the individual flicks of paint, and then I start to back away, and it all comes together into this moody portrait of this sad old man and I felt his presence Mm. right there and I went oh my god here's this guy who painted something hundreds of years ago and he's talking to me now like he's in the room with me and that just blew me away Mm. and left a, a lasting impression And then I got back on my skateboard and went skateboarding again. (laughs) (laughs) Like a 12-year-old would do, you know? Yeah. The seed seed having been set. So that's, I think that's the the driving force. One One of my most aha moments was when you're in undergrad school and grad school, you're always entering these shows or whatever. And I I did a print and sent it off and whatever. And I got a letter from a woman I didn't know in a city I've never been to. And she said, I want to thank you for the image that you did. This is what it meant to me. And she went on to detail everything I had hoped might happen. Mm -hmm. Everything I'd hoped to convey in the image, she got it, you know? And that was the best reinforcement I could ever get. No money could make up for that. That's the reason... That's the reason I did it. Hmm. So that's what I hope to do. I try and 
do these images that draw me in like Rembrandt did. I, I have to, I have to say I respond to realism. Everything I've ever done is realistically drawn. I try and put as much detail in that is useful to convey. I don't want to overdo it, but as a way to draw the viewer in to say, oh, I'm curious about this. Let me get a little closer. And then once the attention is there, I always put a little, some funny little stuff in my drawings where people can see that it's really not the way it's supposed to be. Mm. Yeah, you know, you like life is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, why is that? And to start asking questions. Well, this, this can't possibly be. Why would he do it that way? And maybe this meaning is what he's trying to convey. And a lot of times what I intend gets conveyed, but most often something else comes up that's wonderful, wonderful, you Mm. know, that, that is a personal thing that I could not possibly even know about, but it's triggered. Mm. Yeah. That experience that you described in front of the Rembrandt, I had a a similar one in Nuremberg, Munich, maybe. I don't remember which city or which museum, but it was the one that has Durr's self-portrait from 1500, ah. where he's looking straight, like it's this very, very direct making eye contact with the viewer and he's wearing this fancy coat that he's sort of holding like, Oh, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah. And he has these these elegant hands. He's got his hand up Mm -hmm. on his collar. And there's all, there's all kinds of art historical writing, dissecting it and talking about how he's showing his hands. So it's important to him to show that he has elegant hands because he's not a laborer because a lot of what Durer was interested in doing was elevating the artist, or I don't yes. even know if they can, you can use that term. I don't know if they even kind of understood artists the way we do now, but sort of elevating the image maker and just making himself distinct from armor blacksmith or something. But I, I, it hit me is what you're saying as just really understanding that that was a form of immortality. Because yeah. he was there in the room with me. Yeah. Even though he'd been dead almost, f- yeah, almost 500 years at that point. Yeah. Do the math. And, yeah. 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 I, had to, I was trying to do the math. He died <laughs> in the 15, 1550s. No, he was much younger than that. 1530s, yeah. maybe. Anyway, coming up on 500 years. And, and so, it really stuck with me. And I found what was interesting is that at this point, when I went to see it, I had already been studying Northern Renaissance art in graduate school for about a year. I knew this painting really, really well. I'd seen it. I'd read all these scholarly articles about it. And even ones where they're like, oh, it's so sexy the way his fingers are moving into the fur. He's trying like all this like crazy stuff. (laughs) And I didn't feel that until I was standing in front of it. And I find that such an interesting thing and how your experience, it had to be the real painting. And exactly. It's there's a, I believe it's Erwin Panofsky who was an early 20th century 
art historian and connoisseur who wrote about the aura of art and this idea that something you could never get away with writing now. I think people would just tear you apart for it, but it's like people can authenticate works of art from how they make them feel. Like he believed that the art objects actually carried, as you say, the presence of Rembrandt, the presence of Durer. And it's just a fascinating idea to me. And the fact that like, I was so familiar with this piece, but it, that, that transcendence that it sounds like we've both experienced only happened when standing in front of it. So it's, it's, that's the, the power that the actual object and the craft has, I think. I totally agree. And Rembrandt's etchings are profound because you don't see the details in the reproductions. Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated with the idea that the truth is hidden in the shadows. And a lot of Rembrandt's etchings have these deep, deep, rich black backgrounds. But if you look carefully, there's there's all kinds of wonderful stuff hidden mm, back mm-hmm. there that as an artist, I'm sure he thought, well, I don't want to make it too obvious, but you know, this is something people need to see if they want to look for it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Durer is one of my favorite ones as well. He has a fascinating history because at the time he, he came up, he was, it was a very, strict apprenticeship program that you had to go through to to rise through the ranks. And he got fast-tracked through it super quick. And and part of what I've read is that he they recognized his talent and his ability to make connection to the public because the people that were supporting him wanted a certain ability of an artist to convey messages to the public. And he could do that super well with his imagery and his artistry. My favorite one of his etchings is the one called Melancholia. Do you know Mm -hmm. that one? Yeah, with the angel scribe. Yes. And there's so many, I could spend hours talking about that one because there's there's so much symbology in it. They have the magic square, which is a whole testament to, to honor mathematics if you if you look at the magic square and you add all the numbers in a row, they all add up to the same number. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a mathematician to figure out which numbers to put in there. He he devised his own because the last numbers on the bottom row is fifteen forty, which is the year he did the print. Oh, so okay. he had to invent his own sequence of numbers to put in there to make that work. But the most telling thing for me in that print, Melancholia, is the honor that artists of that age gave to the idea of melancholia. You know, they, they call it depression now or mm-hmm. in your, you take chemicals to treat it or whatever. But they recognized melancholia or depression or whatever as a vital state of creativity because they Mm. knew that at at the time you had to go through some suffering, you know, you had to go through a kind of a spiritual self-examination to get to the point where you could be creative again. 
So it's only in retrospect that I recognize this because I went through a long period of not doing any art at all. Mm. Uh, as, as, as much as my gallery people wanted me to produce and as much as the art world and the ego called, there was something missing. So I gave it up for a while. In retrospect, I recognized the value in that. I read a little blurb about the artist Robert Irwin, who shut up his studio and went off to the desert for a number of years. And what that does, it it made me recenter myself on why it is I do the art. It's 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 not it's not for the fame. It's not for the ego. As a matter of fact, your ego can be quite an enemy. Mm-hmm. It's a way to connect and on two facets. There's a way to connect as you're doing the art where you lose yourself in it. And some people call it the flow or whatever, but mm-hmm. you know, the first time it happened to me, I sat down to do something. It was three o'clock in the afternoon and I looked up and it was the next day. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> I, it was something I did all in one sitting. I lost all track of time. I didn't feel tired. It was, there was, there was an energy there that, that was transcendent. It doesn't always happen. As a matter of fact, it happens rarely. But when mm-hmm. it does, it's good, a good regeneration for the soul and reminds me why I do it on a personal level. And then the other one I already mentioned about putting stuff out there connecting with with other people's, not necessarily verbally, mm-hmm. but in another way that is also transcendent. I've always been curious about why that connection that you're speaking to, which I, I definitely know. I feel like we've we've both experienced it with people centuries dead even why it's so powerful when it comes through an image because you like the woman who wrote you a letter and said, I experienced all these things. You could have written an essay that just was like, this is what I'm thinking and feeling. And I don't think it has the same impact as when you get it through an image or through a work of art. And that's not to say that there aren't beautiful prose that people find very, very moving as well. But those beautiful prose, I would say, also would be indirect. You know, it's it, it's it's so much more profound to see something like melancholia and you get an emotional response to it and an intellectual response rather than someone just saying, feeling melancholia is really hard, but in the end, it can make you have great creative output. Like that doesn't do anything. That doesn't have yeah, like that punch, right? right? So it's so right. interesting to me how it, there's something about, particularly for me, and I'm sure this is why I'm in the arts and not a, in a poet, that images do it. Images really have this way of conveying something on such a deeper level than just reading words. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, the, there's another more personal aspect to it that might factor in. And there's there's the issue of longing. You know, mm. Rumi talks about it in his, mm-hmm. his poetry, but a longing that almost hurts that mm-hmm. you want to make a connection somehow. 
I have to say, I didn't come from what you might call a normal family, even though Mm -hmm. I was told I was in a normal family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So, but we didn't talk. Very odd. We all had our roles. It was day to day. We did our school thing. No divorce, you know, no, but there, there was the hidden secret in the family that no one ever talked about. And you, that taught you that you couldn't talk mm-hmm. about anything that you was near and dear to you, even if fearful. So I'm sure that that played a part in my wanting to express myself in a nonverbal way. And so after a long period of time, looking back on that, and at first as a younger man being resentful about it, I can look back on it and, and see that there was really a blessing in there that caused me to take the path that I've taken, for which I have no regrets. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, something that I heard someone say once, and I don't even remember where, but it, it's really stuck with me, is this idea that discomfort, pain, melancholia, terrible things often that that happen to people and then the emotional consequences of it. It's awful, but when we're in that state of discomfort, it's a very active state. It's a problem-solving state. It's a state where we're trying to return to some sort of even plane. And that that activity in our mind, in our body, in our spirit can be incredibly creative because problem solving is inherently very, very creative. And when we're so motivated by that pain, we're extremely creative in those moments. And so whether that's a creativity that leads to thinking about it a different way or reaching out for help or creating art, it it's, it's an active state of the human experience to be discomfort, uncomfortable to be in discomfort. Yeah. And connected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not, not often by choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you, you, you mentioned that term problem solving. When I, when I use the descriptive artist printmaker, mm-hmm. uh, I take great pride in the printmaker part of it because not all not all artists can be printmakers. Mm-hmm. And the particular thing that I think printmakers do is that they they are problem solvers. When I first walked in and saw somebody doing a lithograph, I said, "Oh, well, how does this work?" And the guy goes, "Well, it works on the idea that grease and water don't mix and whatever." And mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I, yeah, that." But how can you get a drawing like that? Mm. I mean, it sounds so. And so I said, well, okay, I got to try this. And it was that natural inquisitiveness that got me into a place where I could draw on a litho stone and experience drawing on a surface that I've never, ever experienced that is so cool and Mm. so wonderful. There's nothing like drawing on a, on the surface of a litho stone, which is why I do it. If there was a paper that was like that, I would do it in a second. 
be mm-hmm. a lot faster. <laughs> but one of the things that I realized is how malleable and and how much you could work a litho stone to kind of coax it to get images that you can't do on paper. Mm-hmm. So I, it started out by doing an image and I'd say, oh, yeah, I, I've got the addition, but I think I'll play around with it a little bit. And I'll do a deletion and then work on it some more. And there isn't a printmaker live that hasn't seen or experienced the state of a print matrix plate or stone or mm-hmm. whatever, where they say, I like it the way it is, but I know I need to keep working. And you can pull the print and you have the state proof. Which I think is such an interesting point, that idea of like, you can freeze your drawing. You can like save your drawing by printing right. it. Right. And then you can go back and keep working. And so what got me started on this was you know, there's this book that, on lithography. I think it's even called The History of Lithography by Twyman. And, you know, it's, it's a great read for a technical person because it goes into all the methods and all that kind of stuff historically. But there was one page where it showed an image of like a cathedral or whatever, and then a second image where it had been completely altered. Hmm. And all the detail was still there. And and that just kind of amazed me that something could change so much on the same stone and you get a totally different image. So I started experimenting with counter etches and deletions and stuff like that. And I got really good at it, which is why I always say I'm an artist printmaker because mm-hmm. if I I couldn't do that with the printmaking if I wasn't an artist. And as a printmaker, I couldn't be an artist without doing the prints. So it's it it's an un I can't detach one from the other in my state in my case. So I did a series where I started out on a stone where it was just two little puddles of water. One was a little, maybe a little more expressive than the other. And then I did a second state where faces appear. And then a third state where the faces change a little. And part of it had to do with my exploration of uh, duality. I'm an identical twin. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of playing around with the idea of twins and how they might morph and change in relation to each other and also in unison once the image gets combined. So I did 16 different pages of this evolution of two separate identities that eventually merge into one. And it became a whole piece by itself. And so for me, that reinforced the narrative nature that I just love about doing drawings and lithographs, because I think every, every picture has a story to tell. Hmm. And, and part of the, you know, part of the beauty is, is that story that appears as it did for me for that portrait of Rembrandt or, 
melancholia or whatever, a picture forms in your own head from something that was done long, long ago. I was thinking about our conversation when I was doing my prep work for it. I had this observation and I was like, I was like, I, sh- I could say, say that to Peter. Is it sort of offensive? I don't know. My observation would be, I feel like you came out of nowhere from my point of view because <laughs> I hadn't <laughs> seen any of your work. And I've been in, in the business for about a decade. And then I saw your piece rise and fall and I was completely blown away by it. And it just was like, what? Thank you. Where has this person been? Like, how come I don't know about this person? I didn't know anything about you or your practice. I saw it. I was during a show. And so all of that is done anonymously. So you don't see the person's name. You just see the the images in the medium. And I just connected to it right away and found it just so visceral and disturbing and beautiful and unusual and and so I was like really surprised that I hadn't seen any anything that you'd done before but felt really instantly connected with it and and saw in it just the 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 talent of working on the stone for yeah. like came through just like okay this yeah. this person knows a litho yeah. <laughs> this person's very comfortable drawing on all those little dead animals and so how long was that journey cuz you're talking about i think in these really beautiful ways the these first experiences with litho and understanding it when did that start for you like was this in college was that you know yeah i got yeah, I got hooked on litho in college. And then what got me to Texas was a my mentor, Wayne Kimball, who's a Tamarind guy, set up a shop at Univer- University of Texas in San Antonio. And on the weekends I would I would help him print his own prints at his house. So I learned by doing there was a mentorship going on there. He didn't stay in Texas for that long. He wound up leaving and going to teach at Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And I transferred up to University of Texas where they had a pretty good program and finished up there. But I started I started teaching right away at some of the local universities in the area. But I, I think the reason it might seem like I came out of nowhere is because I did. <laughs> I stopped doing work. I stopped doing art. I, I my career was going full full tilt, getting guest artists invitations and doing awards and all that kind of stuff. But I suffered a personal tragedy. My wife died tra- tragically and left me with my five year old son, mm. and my priorities changed. And I also had. I didn't have the emotional capabilities to really deal with something like that in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So there's a good good decade-long period where I just did no art at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, partially to kind of take care of business, partially because I could not I could not bear the grief. And every time I got alone in the studio, the grief would overtake me. So I had to take a long time to adjust to that whole idea of can I work in solitude hmm. or can I work 
lonely and hurt. So there's a difference to be to be able to be whole as a soulful person in solitude and have that inner strength to work and to produce and to give rather than to be in alone, lonely, and in self-pity. And so I had to make that distinction. took a long time, but I can see why people in the ancient times took journeys into the desert to find their spiritual base. I think that's primal thing that artists do either kicking and fighting and along every step, or they do it every day in their practice in how they execute their work. So I guess that's the long and short of it. I did sort of pop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a lot of fun because before I was, I was always thinking about, oh, well, I, ha- I have to do this work for this gallery or I have to do a work for that show. But when I started working again, I committed to myself that time will not be a factor. Mm. It's not going to matter to me how long it takes for me to do this drawing, but I'm going to do it until I, until I feel like it's done. And so that's how Rise and Fall came. It took me off and on about a year to do that mm-hmm. drawing because I couldn't always just sit down and work on it. I would just, what I like to say, percolate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd get so far and then uh, my drawings are never planned out incomplete. You know, it's not a lot of people will uh, approach a print where they have a tracing and they'll just trace it onto the stone. I start with one thing. In this case, it was the horse. And um, I said, well, I know I'm going to start with this and I know there's going to be more, but I'm going to get this done. And as I work, the rest will come to me. And that's how the whole thing evolved. And it changed a lot. I did a lot of deletions. I had a whole background in it. There was mm. a cliffside and all that. And I decided it was too busy. So I took it out. There's a whole lot of scraping on that stone. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but it gave me tremendous freedom because I'm not doing it for for the sales or for for a gallery or whatever. I'm doing it for the very reason it should be done, which is for a higher good, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just sort of processing everything you said because there's, there's so much, there's so much in there. And, and, you know, if you, if you wouldn't mind speaking to, I'd be really, I'd love to hear about that process of starting making art again? You know, like, like, cause you said at first it seemed impossible, but did you, I mean, did you start with sketches? Was it one day it just felt clear? Cause I, I feel like that is a, is a profound moment in your story and, and one that maybe other artists listening to who maybe are kind of in the desert right now might be interested in hearing. Ah, interesting. There's a whole stack of little pocket-sized sketchbooks on my shelf. I I don't even think anybody's seen them. 
but I always carried along with me. And I didn't start by doing drawings in them. I'd, I'd go to these meetings and I'd write down people, things that people would say that seemed profound to me or whatever. But then I started sketching things about what people said. So this one person said, when I was a baby, when I was born, I think I might have had pre-resentments towards my parents. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh I did a little cartoon of parents holding this sweet little baby and the baby's (laughs) holding the gun. (laughs) (laughs) So what I was doing really was responding to these really deeply personal things that people were saying and and just kind of doing a reflective moment about it. And they were just little cartoons. And then, so I have these all these sketchbooks with not only passages, but, you know, images in them. And then that transformed into, there's a higher message here that between men and women and mothers and fathers and children and their parents. And I started thinking about, well, if I were to do a big lithograph about this, what would I, what would I, how would I depict that? So in Rise and Fall, there's the image of the baby boy mm-hmm. that's falling along with the horse and, you know, all the other stuff that's going on. And here's the baby boy who is probably the only one that's oblivious to what's going on because he's so innocent. Mm-hmm. You know, the horse knows what's going on. His his mouth is open and his eyes are open in terror because he's falling. It's the most powerful creature in the image, and you would think that something with such power would would have a way of avoiding the eventual outcome, but he can't. Mm-hmm. So, what's the difference between the innocent child and? The powerful horse, not much. Mm. So, so all that was formative. I was basically just connecting, connecting with people and connecting with what they said and what they were doing. And even if it's just a little jot down in a in a little book or a passage, a phrase or something like that, I mm-hmm. think that's a good way of keeping in touch. It's interesting to hear you talk about rise and fall and that forgive the art word juxtaposition between the the horse and the, and the boy, because one of the things that came away from me when I saw it was the tension I find in horses of the fact that they are incredibly powerful They're fast. They've helped humans create agriculture and build roads, and they've been our companion in this way, and that their strength has done that. But they're also so delicate in the sense that one cactus spur in the hoof that goes untreated, it's done for. Yeah. So, like, that they also tend to hurt themselves a lot. If anyone who's owned horses, like they tend to like step on something or maybe trip or like they, they, they can be kind of powerful and delicate at the same time. And in that image, that's what I saw. 
you know, I saw that weird, it almost makes me uncomfortable, honestly, like, like with, with horses, like that, that like delicacy and power together. I don't know. It makes me, it, it makes me feel some kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> well, know? think about if, if you think about yeah. You're looking at the anatomy of, of the horse, but if you think about the, the actual structure, mm-hmm. if you make a comparison, the entire weight of the horse, if you think about it, is on one knuckle. Right. You know, when you think about the structure. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's such a powerful creature, but it pivots on just the, these four very, very delicate points. And it's both its beauty and grace, but it's also its weakness. Right. I don't know if you got a close look at that, that horse, but I, instead of using a horse's eye, I put a human eye. In the oh. So okay. that's, next time you take a peek at it, it's, it's what I hope contributes to the terror of the look. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I had to Google it so I could look again. And because I do like the horse's face, having not seen it, I think probably since Corpus Christi, yeah. which is the the show that I, I, I juried into and then got to see it in person there. And I think for everyone sort of as we're kind of doing a deep dive on this piece, I think it should also be said like it's, it's, it's big. I mean, it's yeah. the paper is 46 by 34 inches and it's, it goes, it takes up the, the more or less the, the whole space. And I remember so clearly the horse's expression like that. I remember that there were wolves or dogs and everyone was falling and that there were human figures in it, but the horse's expression was the most clear to me in, in the, the month since I'd seen it. And I'm sure, as you say, it speaks to like the, the human the human eye, I'm sure, is part of yeah. the reason why it, it really hit me. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's what I was referring to when I said I like to put these little zingers in there for people to find later. You know, it's that's exactly the, the kind of thing that it so enthralled me by Melancholia and Durer's work is that you could you can spend hours looking at the little details. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get a recast of that print. It, it's, it's, it's a reprint done on a plate the same way, but it's, it's, it's not the original, but mm-hmm. it's almost as good as the original. And it's you know, probably as, as close as you'll get without going to Sotheby's. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the beauty is in the detail sometimes. And I like the idea of someone having something that's been hanging up in their house for a long time. And then maybe the light will hit it a different way or they'll be in a different mood and they take a look at it and say, Oh, there's something else here. I didn't notice. Mm -hmm. Like one day you wake up and you notice something about yourself that you didn't notice before. And you can find some self-reflection in every moment that you have. If you keep your eyes open. Yeah. It it reminds me a bit of, one of the points that came up a lot when I was in graduate school, I was studying 16th century printmaking and my wonderful advisor, Dr. Pia Cuneo, star of episode 100 of the Hello Print Friend podcast. One of the things that she always would go back to would 
be to encourage me and and her her students to think about the physicality of the prints and the way people would interact with them. And she was talking about how it's a relatively new art form at this point in the in early 16th century. And people are getting this experience of being able to hold it in their hand, look closely at it, and pass it around and share it. And that you would it, they were yes. meant to be discussed. They were meant to 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 continue to reveal themselves. So if in a print like Melancholia, where there's there's chains and there's nails and there's this sort of Sudoku sort of thing on the wall that's the, the, yes. the square you're talking about and then this cube and this dog and like it's all meant to continue to give over a long period of time and that there could even be a real social aspect to it which is again that theme of connection that we've been talking yes. about where you could say well what, what is that dog doing and and even the the folds in the angel's robes are so intricate and strange. And I'm sure you could find someone somewhere who's looking in and finding things in there as well. So it, it I don't know. I, I guess it's just, I, I think in part because that's my training as a scholar, I, I tend to really connect to work that is like that. And it, so it's funny that I connected so much to the piece Rise and Fall because you do – Reference directly sometimes 16th century art, but yes. not so, not in that piece, but like I just was like zoop, like as soon as I saw it. So there's yeah. something even in, I think, in your, in your practice that I saw and connected with even kind of beyond, even though it wasn't directly referencing that style of, of image making. It just felt like I could just tell that it was in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the, my earlier work, but I I actually co-opted Roger Vanderweiden and mm -hmm. a lot of those images specifically because I wanted people to get a, a sense that oh, uh, this my this is an old print. The, upon first imagining or looking at it, you would say, "Oh, it's an old print." But then you get up closer and say, "Oh, it's been altered. Oh, it's not a new print. It's something that's contemporary." And then, so in a way, I was doing it at first as a as a kind of art historical lure to kind of draw the viewer in, and then and then encounter something else. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you recognize that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, it's definitely one, one form of image making and creating connection across time and space. And that's, you know, what I always think about it. And I know that sounds so melodramatic somehow because you know, we're connecting across time and space, but that's what we're doing. You know, yes. I mean, that's, that is, again, to go back to the portraits that we both experienced, but then also, you know, I didn't know who, who you were. Like I said, you, you quote unquote came out of nowhere and, and you created that print not in front of me. So there was like a time difference in that way. And anyway, it's just, it's, it's really remarkable how effective that is and how I think that continued study of art and immersion in art has fruits that make that easier, that make that reading easier, that make that finding that connection easier. Because I think 
people maybe who aren't immersed in the art world as we are lucky enough to be, I think that they haven't built the muscle to trust that connection. It's not that it's not there, but yeah. they're sort of fed this idea of art is for really wealthy people. Art is for extremely educated people. Art is like opera, that kind of a thing. And, and so they'll see something and they may find a connection with it, but their second thought is often, well, that can't be right, but I don't know anything about art. Well, this isn't for me. And, and that just learning to sort of trust that instinct is a huge part of just becoming fluent in reading images. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, part of it too, I think my attraction to, to prints and printmaking is, is that I, I think most of my pre-education was in the library. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I I come from a family of five boys and all under, all within five years, my mom couldn't handle us. Mm -hmm. So she'd she'd dump us at the library and I can't tell you how many hours I spent leafing through art history books and images. So I, I totally get that idea of the intimacy of a print and 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 a book and the personal experience that happens when you actually hold a print. Part of what's really hard for me looking at prints and shows is that there's glass over them and I can't mm-hmm. really see the surface the way I want to see it or feel the paper or whatever. So I've done a few book format books, assemblages of of prints that I'm real fond of because you can you can touch them and feel them and pull them out and all that stuff. And it's a whole different experience than going to a, a white wall and being distant from the thing rather than holding it. So I, hmm. I totally get that. Yeah. I actually had made a note to ask you about your artist books, because I, I think that that is interesting. You, you bring it up in that context of the, uh, of the intimacy of the format. Because it had never, yeah. it honestly had not occurred to me until this moment that when you make an artist's book, you're folding into the physical experience of the receiver that holding in the handness. Yes. You know, which prints yeah. used to be done, but now, as you say, under glass, on the wall, don't touch it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, that that's a direct response to the, I guess, I can put it simply as the birth of my imagination hmm. because I had a hard time learning to read, but when when it finally clicked and the words as assembled on the page gathered together to form an image in my mind of another world, it was profound for me. Mm-hmm. And And I think that's what we do as artists is that we have – a thought or an idea that is simply just a thought that no one knows about, but we have the means and and the passion and the physicality to to make it make it so. Mm-hmm. And and when we can put something out in the world that's made from nothing, comes from a blank thought into something. That's quite a gift. A lot of times I think it has nothing to do with me, but with some other higher power that 
that I'm gifted with and keeps that keeps me humble because I have no idea a lot of times how, how these things come about and I'm truly blessed. Mm. Well, I had no idea how I was going to wrap up this conversation and I think you just did it beautifully <laughs> in that because I was just thinking I was like how are we gonna how are we gonna put a bow on this because it's just been so expansive and delightful to talk and so I I really I really appreciate getting the chance to talk about all of this and connecting with you as a as a fellow durophile Roger Vanderweiden, a file, Northern Renaissance person. And yeah, it's just been, it's been great. And so I hope that we stay in touch and, and continue to talk about all the good things in the world. All right. It was a pleasure. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Angela Silver. Angela lives and works in the Philippines, and we talk about the fascinating history of printmaking in the region, her unexpected path to coming to the medium, getting printmaking supplies in a country that's made up of over 7,000 islands, and her super exciting projects just on the horizon. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.